what is it that makes us human and how do we guard that? How do we understand that? Because we don't really fully understand it today. And how do we guard that and perpetuate it in a way that carries it forward into whatever happens next? Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So David, David Bogosian, thank you so much for being willing to be on the show and to share your thoughts and the, the truth of your head. He has a big head, not literally a big head, a big brain in his head. And he has a big heart too. And it's funny, I've known David sort of for several years, but I feel like it's really only been the last month or two that we've gotten to really start connecting. And I think I, for one, am kind of amazed at how aligned we are on, on a multitude of topics, particularly this one of putting our humanity first. Normally, as the, as the audience knows, when I introduce somebody, I will share their bio or their CV or whatever, and I will talk about all the amazing functional professional things they've done. I'm actually not going to do that today. If you, if you want to know about David Bogosian, go on LinkedIn and you can see his profile and he's done some amazing shit. What's more important is actually, or as important, I should say, is David sent me a note today with a bunch, I assume you sent to a bunch of other people referencing some of your Medium posts, some of the articles that you've written. And I just want to share with the audience the titles of, of a handful of these posts. And we're going to talk about one specifically. But here, here's one. It's called Biology as Information Processing. And David's subscript to that is an attempt to focus on what it is that makes us human, seekers of meaning, and why the tools of science and reason are not enough. This is my kind of guy, people. Here's another one. What the hell is water? <laughs> What the hell is water? A discussion of a famous commencement address, not about compassion, as most thought at the time, but about privilege, as we are now learning. And there's another one called Sea Level. C is spelled S-E-E. Some ruminations about why the brain likes simplicity and on telling the truth, one of my faves. And then the other one is that he mentions in this email is wrong, but useful. I actually didn't quite get this. First and shortest, a joke I love about George Box's famous quote about the necessary approximations we make about the world. Well, we should talk about that too. But the, will. the other one reference is really what I would I'd love you to just share with us a little bit more depth on is was titled Innovating Our Way Through E.O. Wilson's Bottleneck, which David just shared with me. He first posted on LinkedIn a while back, and it had 4,000 views, which is yeah. sizable. So for the audience's benefit, can you give us a cliff note version of what that, what that little piece you wrote was, was, was getting at? What, what's, the, what's the point? I could probably read it since my new approach to life is I got to do everything in less than 700 words. Everything? Um, <laughs> but probably not this podcast. So E.O. Wilson in 2003, I think, wrote a famous Scientific American essay about how humanity is approaching a technology bottleneck. And in biology, a bottleneck is when the population reduces to such a 
small number of individuals that certain recessive traits, it looks like evolution can speed up because certain traits will survive in, in a small population that would be selected out in a larger population. So it looks like lots of variation starts to happen. And his point was that we're with climate change and, and technology, we are approaching a, a place where humanity might find itself in a bottleneck and that, that essentially our wise use of technology needs to catch up with the technology's capabilities itself, which is a hard problem. You know, and this, is a, this is something that, that a lot of us have started thinking about and are spending a lot of time thinking about today. And so David, I did David, my... Let me, just before you go too yeah. far, be a, can you be a little a little more explicit about what are the... I understand the biological consequences, but what are the sort of, call it societal consequences of that bottleneck? Well, so the bottleneck that we're facing isn't like a, you know, a colony of puffins where, you know, there's a new predator and we're down to, you know, a dozen individuals and we need to build back our population. Hopefully we don't get there as a species. That would be pretty bad. That would be a pretty ugly situation. So the bottleneck that we're facing is the prospect of the very institutions that make our civilized life possible, degrading to the point where it can't support 7 billion people or 8 billion people that are on the planet today. And, you know, you play out those scenarios and you, you know, you can get to dystopian battles over resources and, and degradation of, you know, civilized society pretty quickly. I mean, we're seeing the beginnings of it now where strong men are in favor around the world and refugee crises from various client emergencies are are flooding into western europe and creating issues there in terms around immigration and, and our pathetic approach to immigration is under huge stress so it's yeah. you know it's not impossible to think that we could find ourselves in a world 20 years from now where there are really really challenging stresses on our ability to provide for ourselves and each other and you know wilson's point is that we need to get out in front of that sooner rather than later well and you know as you know so david has actually become a uh, a help for me on on the book that i'm writing technology is dead and he, he's been reading the first few chapters and gave me some feedback on the first one and i'm looking forward to more and as he knows, I'm, I'm in the middle of the book, which is a depiction of the unintended consequences of technology. And the chapter I'm just about to finish is titled Division, Erosion, and Consolidation. And it's talking about ostensibly how technology has insinuated itself into not just our lives, but our structures and our systems. And it's beginning to cause erosion and even transformation, not necessarily in a positive direction for a lot of the systems and structures. I bring it up because in writing this particular chapter, and the whole premise of the book is technology is amazing and can also be, is increasingly problematic. I realized that this insidious sort of insinuation of the thing into the systems and structures is joined by another insidious insinuation and that is the tendency of humans. That, and this is particularly applicable in the developing world or developed world where when success is sustained for some period of time, an observation has been made, not by me, but by somebody else, but I think is valid, that 
hubris rears its head. And when hubris rears its head, the concern for the collective goes out the window. And so there's a double whammy I think the world is facing today of the impact of technology, as Wilson wrote, and also the impact of humanity as we sort of continually perpetuate this hubristic pattern for lack of a better word. Anyway, I just, I'm gonna, I promise I won't cut you off too many times. <laughs> but no, that's great. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that we lose sight of the things that make our lives possible. A lot of the things are communal. Right. Um, our government itself, you know, we're right in the middle of this election season and it's, it's startling to think of how fragile some of this stuff is, you know, that one guy in a, in a powerful office can throw a bunch of dust in the air and all of a sudden we're wondering, wow, does our vote count? Do our right. elections really work? Right. It's, you know, it's our lies really bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. I, I mean, I think that's as problematic as, as even the systems and structural stuff, which is this sort of some percentage of the population are either beginning to question morality, ethics, principles, integrity, you know, and or sort of accepting that maybe there's a there's a, a whole new set of definitions because, you know, one individual has chosen to try to make it so. I, I, don't, I don't know. But let's go back to your piece. The, the inference of the title is there's a way out of the woods. Is, <laughs> yeah, I don't pretend to know the answers, but I think that, you know, we're going to have to innovate on a scale that, and with humans in mind on a scale that probably we, we aren't prepared to, to do now. So the puffins, you know, didn't know what's coming. So they, they aren't, they aren't required to get out in front of it. But when, when it happens to them, what, what really counts is having diversity in the population. So we think about the enlightenment and, uh, you know, the rights of man and, you know, going back to the founding of the Republic and how we were supposed to be tolerant of each other and tolerant of diversity. We need to move to the point where we embrace diversity and we, we literally love each other for our differences because that's where the innovation is going to come from on how we live together. You know, the the other kinds of things that need to happen is we really do need to try, try everything and, and build systems that enable us to experiment and take care of people who fail because there'll be a lot of people who fail in their experiments, but also share what works. And, and enable people to, to do a better job of, of working on the things that actually do succeed. And then, as you have pointed out, Chris, the, the, the missing element is our, our humanity. You know, I like to think of us as a species thinking about what is it that makes us human and how do we guard that? How do we understand that? Because we don't really fully understand it today. And how do we guard that? and perpetuate it in a way that carries it forward into whatever happens next. That's really going to be the hard problem. Yeah. I mean, I, and we've talked about this, I, I marvel, and this includes my own, my own self. I marvel at the reluctance of people to get close to the truth of people. You know, I was just talking about my first marriage and its failure. And I think, fundamentally that wasn't about us falling out of love that was about us not having the courage to actually get to know each other you know and i think that's not unusual um, no 
And I, you know, you, you and I, so one of the David's many roles is he's a longstanding mentor at the Harvard Innovation Labs where, where he and I met. And, you know, what we see, I'm sure what you've seen in your work there, working with the student teams is more often than not failure, not, you know, versus success. And my view of that is the reason for the primary reason for that is not the, the student's inability to build whatever their vision is or their ideas. It's, it's the inability to get the human as customer to adopt the, the thing. And, and it really points to this reluctance of people to get intimate with, with the customer or intimate with the ex-wife, you know, like, and it's just, again, it's just, it's a phenomena that maybe that's the wrong word, but it's a vexing issue that we somehow, some way have to get better at. You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I was just on the, one other thing that related to that, I was just on the phone with some technology guys, big technology company, and they're, they want to do an event and have a bunch of healthcare C, CIOs. And they were like, which, which we, how should we, I, how should we think about the event? And, and we need a title for the event. And I said, maybe the title should be, is the, is the condition terminal? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it, 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 <laughs> you know, is it possible that, the developed world generally in America specifically has gotten so big and so lumbering and so complicated that the reinvention of it, whether human first or not, is even possible. Gee, and Chris, it, technology is dead, terminal <laughs> conditions. You know, is there something you want to talk about on this podcast? I'm having a bad day. Plus I watched, I watched the debate, man. <laughs> yeah, pretty much ruining anybody's evening. Yeah, no, I hear you. It's a hard problem. And, and, you know, you think about, I like to think of this, you know, this current phase that we're going through, at least in the States and maybe in the, you know, developed world as sort of the last gasp of the full on individualistic Marlboro man materialistic culture that, you know, that worked really well for a while when it was gentlemen farmers, you know, selling their corn to the to the market in town. But now at scale, like a lot of things at the extremes, they don't work as well as, as they do when they're, you know, in a, in a smaller environment. That's a little bit about what wrong but useful is all about, right? It's a George Box. There's a famous quote, all models are wrong, some are useful. And, you know, basically when you're trying to figure something out and you create a simulation or a model of it, you know, it often works within certain bounds within, you know, in the sort of normal range of activity. But then when you get out to the extremes of, you know, plug in zero or infinity here, it blows up the model. And uh, that's sort of where we are now. We have a model of the way that we work together. And it's not all that well suited to the scale, as you were saying, of what we're trying to do with, you know, with 10 billion people on the planet or whatever the number is going to be. Yeah. And, and I totally agree, obviously. And, and the other thing sort of, and I've, we've talked about this as well, one of the, one of my specific frustrations with how we are managing our society, not just our government, but us as contributors to it is the lack of energy, effort, consideration around how well or not well the education system is preparing people, our children, the youth of, you know, the adults of tomorrow 
for the complexities of the world we find ourselves in. I mean, I'm just sort of saying that the model that we have doesn't actually work really anymore. And one way to solve that longer term is to rethink the model of education. Any any reactions to that? You know, agreement, disagreement? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm old. So, you know, I, I went to high school in the 70s. And I just remember being shocked when my own children, 35 years later, went to school. And it was virtually indistinguishable <laughs> from what I did, you know, in 1972. I mean, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> hell? Like, what the hell? Well, and then, and then later on to it, my, uh, my ex-wife started as a teacher, uh, I think uh, eighth grade English teacher. It was not that long ago. And she was making like $40,000 a year. Yeah. You know, and, and this is, these are people that are charged with what is arguably one of the most important jobs in our society. And we underpay them. And we, we shove 30 to 40 students in their classroom and they have to buy their own chalk, yeah. you know, like what? And then you go to the debate last night or you go to the 2016 debates and the word education was never uttered by anybody. Barely registers. So if we're yeah, sitting in almost we, any, yeah, almost any solution that you can envision any, any world that actually works, you know, education is a huge part of it. I mean, we're not going to stop Facebook from publishing a bunch of conspiracy theories. We're the only way to really, I mean, we could try and then we can do a much better job than we're doing today to keep that stuff off of the airways. But really the only way to counteract that is to teach ourselves how to, how not to be swayed by it, right. how, how to recognize, you know, divisive, false information when we see it and not not react to it, not retweet it, not send it back out into the atmosphere, but to actually stand up and say, hey, this is wrong. You right. Know? Right. And that's yeah. education. That's that's education we all need. Right. Yeah. I was actually writing in the book today about QAnon. You know about QAnon? <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh my God. And and when Facebook did yeah, when Facebook it. did its internal study, they determined that there were literally thousands of groups and thousands of pages with millions of QAnon followers. And for those of you who don't know QAnon, it is a David mentioned conspiracy theory that I believe has something to do with a. There's a. It's a, based on a belief that there are a group of people, largely liberal people, who have a satanic, pedophilic child trafficking child child trafficking ring that is all designed to overthrow Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's morphed into anti-Donald Trump for a while. It was, you know, against against it was, you know, in favor of bringing down Hillary and, you know, the Clintons are all involved obviously and Jeffrey Epstein and they're, you know, they're all trafficking in in and you know, it's just like it's like so many things, there's just enough truth. I heard somebody the other day say, you know, the, the conspiracy people, theory people are not wrong because they aren't getting the whole story behind what's going on in the world because it's not possible to give the whole story. Everything that we, this is back to all models are wrong. Everything that we have is, a, is an approximation of what's actually going on. And so... 
you know, they, they have the sense like there's stuff happening in the world that I don't understand. Well, yeah, but, you know, that doesn't mean that the Trilateral Commission or Opus Dei or whoever, whoever else is, you know, is pulling the strings. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. And it also, what I'm sensing is things that were aspects of our existence that were viewed as concrete are now viewed as malleable. And the example I would use is I gave a, uh, I wrote a piece and then I gave a solo podcast on integrity. And uh, the the title of it is, actually, I'm not even sure it's a podcast, but anyway, the title of it is what's your IQ, but instead of intelligence quotients, it's integrity quotient. And I got, I got some notes as I usually do. And I got one from this guy saying, you know, my view of integrity is, and he was a Freemason that for some reason stuck with me. My view of integrity is it's really up to the individual and that Donald Trump as an example has integrity because he lives by his rules. And I thought to myself, wow, when something as foundational as integrity or as foundational as truth become malleable, variable, changeable through the eyes or the mind of the beholder, when morality is no longer a shared value or proposition or belief system, but it's actually up to the individual to determine what their morality is, what do you do with that? Yeah. Like, what do you, you know? And it goes back to, um, for me, it goes back to education as one means. I think leadership is another means. You know, one of the things I've been talking a lot about with people is we all have to lead. You know, I say to my three kids who are all in their 20s, you cannot stand on the sidelines. You know, I mean, when I was 28 years old, I, I didn't, I don't, I'm not even sure I voted. You know, I was, I was hell bent on building my company and that's all I cared about. And I think today's world, we all have to care more and we have to, you know, we have to step, step into the void of, of this stuff and take it on. You know, and I, you do see it even at the iLab, which is where a lot of our shared experiences, Chris, you, you know, easily half of, of the teams that come out of Harvard and come down to the iLab and want to build something are trying to build something that it has some kind of social mission at its score. core. It might be a, might be a profit-making enterprise, but it's right. trying to improve access to finance or education or clean energy, you know, healthcare. Yeah. And a lot of the students really get this, that this is, this is their job. Yeah. Take some of us on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there that, I, I, in a weird way, the demographics may be a big part of the solution. That the shifting of the mix, particularly in America, of to you know a new kind of majority, the voice of the millennials, the voice of minorities that are going to be the majority. Like I think, you know, it's potential that the sensibility of the of the country and its culture will will shift with that with that demographic shift. Speaking of shift, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about one of the other pieces that you wrote, this idea of uh, biology as information processing, this idea of, of humans as seekers of meaning, you know, and that why the tools of science and reason are not enough. Can you just riff a, a little bit about what that piece is about? Yeah, so this is where I get a little weird. I like weird, man. Are you okay with weird? Totally weird. So I have a great friend who is a, a biologist. You know, one of the things living in this part of the world where we do is we get to hang out with really, really smart people 
And this guy is, is one of those, you know, definitely a genius and has the paperwork to prove that he's a genius, which, you know, which we, we don't, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) What have they got that you haven't got Chris? Diploma. At any rate. So we were talking about writing a book about life. Uh, the, uh, the, he's a geneticist, so it was, it was going to be about what we've learned in genetics uh, over the last 50 years and trying to popularize it. And we didn't get very far on that project, but he did at one point say, well, if we were going to do that, we'd have to talk about life as an infinite information processing system. Hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, well, so we'll do that. Yeah. And then, of course, three weeks later, I, I woke up and went, wait a minute, life is an information processing system. Is that true? And in what ways is it true? Which started me on an extended riff, as is my want, of thinking about the ways in which that makes sense and is an insight into the way things actually work. And to make a long story short, if you think about DNA is encoding information about the environment, it's so that the next generation can survive and reproduce and make more DNA. Quick, quick interject. I was interviewing somebody the other day about the, partly we were talking about the, uh, the capacity of trauma transfer generation to generation by DNA. You know, this idea that. Oh yeah. yeah. No, I mean, on all these topics, there are, there are incredible levels of detail. And of course the way academia and, and, and science is structured Success comes from digging way deep into those levels of detail and finding some new, very strange. One of my advisors when I was in college said, you know, my research about snails is only interesting to 12 people in the world, but it's very, very interesting to them. (laughs) But this is much more at a macro level. I mean, people who actually know what they're talking about would say, well, that's not really true. And of course, it isn't true always everywhere. But DNA is coded information. Brains and synapses are coding information about the environment and using them in real time. Language is coded information about about the world that enable us to communicate with each other. And digitization, the computation is, is coded information about the world. Well, whenever you information theory teaches us that whenever you code something, whenever you reduce something to code, you simplify and therefore leave things out. That's the whole point, right? It's it's, the map is not the territory. All models are wrong. Some are useful. And so we've been on an extended jag of coding through science and, and human affairs and politics and education, our world into technology, essentially. Right. And that, everything, everything's de- bits and bytes. Everything's, right. everything's DNA. bits and bytes. Right. And by and by definition, that leaves th- things out, and what is left out is this core sense of our humanity. Right. And it turns out that that's really, really hard to define, and really, really hard to put your finger on because it's not codable. As soon as it's codable, it's commu- we can communicate it to other people. Right. But there's this ineffable thing that lies outside of reason and science. That is, this is essentially the hard problem of consciousness, right? This is mm-hmm. the thing that, you know, what David Bennett and the rest of them are talking about what it's like to be a bat. You can't describe it. And so this is where I get pretty weird. I'm really, I really think that the things that we need to pay attention to, in addition to improving our technology and our systems and, and the things that 
that we are good at coding are those things that lie outside of that coded system. Right. Well, it's a quick, funny, I mean, not funny, haha. I mentioned the technology is dead. The book was spawned by a talk I gave in Singapore a couple of years ago titled Technology is Dead. It was to the largest at the largest financial technology conference in the world, 60,000 people, 6,000 people heard me, my keynote. But my point in sharing that is not to brag. It's simply to say in my talk, I, I explicitly state the task here is to stop coding technology and to start decoding our humanity. Mm. <laughs> but to your point, de- I like that. decoding I like our hum- decoding our humanity it's actually not a codable or decodable proposition, you, right? We can't turn turn it into a, a sort of fixed selection of bits and bytes, right? It's not. We can't get it into a into a box, right? Right. With that said, I guess for me, you know, the hope is in. I think mechanistically, can behavioral science psychology and all the sort of related fields become more of a centerpiece of our education system. Mm. I mean, the irony of my career is I've never, I've never, I've never taken one psychology class and I've never taken a behavioral science class, but I love it. And in, in graduate school, I, I, my strength was behavioral economics, but Kino, can we start teaching to that? I think is the mechanistic Mm. question Again, it doesn't make it a science necessarily. It doesn't make it perfectly black and white, but just elevating awareness of some of this stuff would seemingly be helpful. And then the second part is humanistic, which is, can more of us simply step forward to say, I want to understand more. Yeah. I want to understand you better. I want to understand me better. I want to understand the people that are voting for you-know-who better. None of it with judgment, all with you know, open mind and open heart and, and, you know, a desire to, to understand it better so that I can participate better as part of this species or something. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's quite profound when you say that that part of our humanity cannot be put in a box. Um, It can't, can't be reduced to code. We can get closer and we can understand it better and better, you know, not unlike the advancements in physics in the last 50 years, you know, every, every discovery raises more questions than it answers. And right. so that horizon continues to recede, you know, until you get to the point where, you know, Heisenberg says, well, you know, there's just a certain amount of uncertainty at that, you know, at the quantum level. And it's not because, you know, we're not smart enough to figure it out. It, it's fundamental to, the way reality works. And, and that's sort of what I'm saying is that you can approach that level of understanding, but you never really arrive. And in order to actually get a sense of what that limit looks like, you almost have to break out of the coding system and say, okay, right. what is the, what's the bigger picture here? Well, and I think it also, it maybe goes back to something you said earlier, which is it's possible that I can't actually get much better at understanding you. But if I care more about understanding you, that in and of itself will yield benefit to you and to me. That if if all we can affect as a society is not an improvement in the science of our humanity, but in 
our behavior. <laughs> you know, if if yeah. more of if more of us can just care a little bit more about the other, or even just pretend to care. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just like fake it till we make it. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, I I think you know potentially that could have a profound impact. One one of the sort of anecdotes that goes with that is I do the grocery shopping in our in our family and shop at Market Basket over in Chelsea, and I marvel at how many times in the store I will see a box of something falling off the shelf, having fallen off the shelf, not broken or anything, just lying on the aisle floor and how everybody will walk by. Yeah, I have a friend who one of his favorite interview questions is, what do you do with your shopping cart when you're done unloading it in your car? And, you know, it it just says a lot about people, you know, you wheel it back to the little corral, do you take it back into the store, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, yeah. It's tiny, but it, it's revealing. Well, and and, that, and then it, it also triggers for me, well, two things. One is that IQ piece that I wrote, the end of it actually has a quiz, uh, an integrity quiz. I don't think there's a shopping cart question, but there are several that are sort of similar to that, right? And the other the trigger for me is, they said this on a, I talked the other day that um, I think we all have to believe that even little, little, little efforts can make a difference. It's kind of like the people that say, why bother voting? You know, like my vote doesn't count. I'm just one, whatever. You know, I think if more people put the shopping carts back, if more people pick up the, the box on the, on the aisle floor, if more people say thank you, if more people seek to help, you know, I think, Systems aside, science aside, I think it it could create it would create certainly a better a, a better picture for for more people. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can build better science and better systems, and we should, right? That's right. part of what we do as human beings, and it's sort of wired extremely deeply. But there will always be ways to game those systems. There will there will always be things that are left out of those systems that, you know, that enable people that are so inclined to circumvent them. And so we need to work on ourselves right. and stop, stop wanting to circumvent them. You know, uh, my, fa- my same advisor who was studying snails was an was a evolutionary biologist. And he said, just because something is genetic, just because something is deeply wired, doesn't mean that it's predetermined. You can choose to do things differently. Hmm. And, you know, clearly we're wired to self-maximize, to, you know, Mm -hmm. make things as good as we can for ourselves and, you know, a hundred other people, most of whom are related to us. Right. Just because we're wired that way doesn't mean we can't learn to do it differently. Right. Right. We're of time here. So I want to ask a a huge question. (laughs) Which is completely... (laughs) Have you gotten huge enough for you yet? No, no, no. No. And it actually, you know, back to my self, my selfish, you know, I'm all I care about is finishing my damn book. And uh, the the last, the third section of the book is, you know, how we solve this problem. Like the middle section is, oh my God, we have a problem. And the first part is technology is some, some good things sort of, but one of the things I'm starting yeah, to sort of, I'd say antibiotics, you know, right, right, right. small things that have right. been really pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But one <laughs> of the things I'm sort of circling around is this question of religion. Mm-hmm. And I am not, I am not a religious person. Uh, I didn't really grow up with religion. 
I don't really know much about religions. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't survive on uh, Jeopardy. But as I contemplate, you know, how do we create or, or get back to a world of shared, shared interests, shared understanding, shared beliefs, shared values, it strikes me that the, the decline of, of religious mechanism, for lack of a better word, may, theoretically, I have no idea, may have had an impact on where we are that absent that consistent coming together and reinforcement of beliefs, policies, value, not policies, beliefs, values, whatever, ideologies that, you know, that maybe that's, that's partly to blame for the, the individualism, the, the divisions, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, as I contemplate the, the solution moving through this bottleneck I'm not questioning whether it's not so much about, you know, creating religion or, or bringing religion back as a centerpiece of people's lives, but, you know, are there other ways to achieve a similar outcome? Don't require religion. I don't know. It's, it's like a, <laughs> it's, a it's a wacky, you want, you Wait, want to is get there a to question. Is there a question? I guess I just love your reaction <laughs> to that. Like plausible, implausible. No, I, I don't I understand totally, what you say. Totally, totally get where you're going. It's almost inevitable when you start thinking about this stuff. Clearly, the erosion of religious belief of, of what other, whatever form has removed some guardrails from the conversation and from the way people behave, probably to our detriment. Although, you know, as, as we know from the news every day, the fact that someone espouses a religion has almost no bearing on whether they're actually a nice person or not. Right. But it yeah, does yeah. it does come down to this gap between what systems are able to do and what humanity is able to do. And I actually think of it as a a completely different way of knowing. I mean, we've got reason, we've got science and we've got logic and that works really well and as I said antibiotics are a really good thing. And the, technologies that make our life possible are are a very good thing. But there's this other thing, which is letting that all go and getting past the, I mean, a lot of it is sort of Zen. It's, it's very Eastern. It's get, getting rid of the ego. It's getting transcendental about the way you think about the world. I think actually is, a, is a, and, and it's been part of the way philosophers have thought about humanity for a long time. There's this rational side of us and then there's this transcendental side. And, you know, the rational side has been so successful for us in the West that, you know, we've sort of underdeveloped the, our ability to sort of leave that behind and get with ourselves and our place in the universe without all that intervening technology. I think there's a discipline in the East that probably deserves to be looked at as a way to understand that way of knowing better. Mm -hmm. There's a really interesting analogy if you've got two more minutes. Sure. Um, sure. So quantum computing, right? Regular classical computing is bits and bytes, digits, logic, brute force, you know, deep blue learn to play chess by playing out all of the possible options and choosing the best one. Quantum computing uses uncertainty at, a, at the atomic level to literally hold a problem in suspense without drawing conclusions, without 
making assumptions without sort of classical uh, logic. And then, as I understand it, at some point when you need an answer, you push a button and it goes into classical mode and it delivers up the best answer that it has at the moment from this amorphous consideration of a problem hmm. in a, inside, a, inside a problem space. And that feels like an analogy to uh, the kind of thinking that we need to learn to do as people. Yeah. We need to keep that openness, be able to hold two things in our head or maybe a million things in our head at the same time. And then when we do make a decision and go into classical logical mode, realize that that's going to be a partial solution. It's not going to be the final answer. I love that. And I, and I think, you know, the idea of, um, I, I, you could argue that our lives have become lives of brute force. Yeah. Yeah. Like in, 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 in everything, you know, dealing with the volume of transaction the you know, the, the, just the 24 seven nature, the way to survive is to deploy brute force. And I think COVID has exposed for a lot of people how untenable that kind of life really is and or how unsatisfactory and or how exhausting it is. And the idea of this, this sort of yin yang of, of, yeah, at some point you have to execute, sure. But if the execution is on the base or foundation of contemplation, you know, contemplation without ego, contemplation without fixation, just straight up contemplation, Mm, then maybe in execution, you might actually need a little bit less brute force and, you know, and you, you might go into it recognizing that it may not be a perfect solution, but it's going to move you forward or something. But, but I think that I just love that analogy and, 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 and the idea of, of all of us, I think part of the solution is, is slowing down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I used to be, I, I used to be hard over on the uh, logic and reason side, right? I, you know, uh, uh, like Matt Damon says in The Martian, we're going to science the shit out of this and, you know, (laughs) figure it out. And I've sort of come around to the point where, yeah, that's useful, but it's not the whole story. Right. Well, this... And then we could probably talk all night. You know, the the other sort of thing... We could go for a while. The other thing that's implicit in this is, is... which. I wrote something else a while back, which is inappropriately titled 50 Shades of Grey. (laughs) And the whole thing I read that the whole point is like the answer lies in the middle, right? The answer never lies. The answer never lies in the polls. But we humans prefer polls because they're simple. Black versus white, red versus blue, you know, Democrat, Republican, pick your polls. But more often than not, the answer is in the middle. And similarly, the answer to a lot of the complexities we face, I think this is what you're saying, lies in the middle between science and call it humanity or the, the, the unscience. And all of us, I think, you know, embracing that as truth and then working in our individual ways, because I think it does take a village to solve the problems of the village to find that middle ground on, yeah. on everything, on everything, you know? I mean, I'm thinking about my last argument with Kate, my wife, like there was an imbalance in that argument, which is why it sort of escalated into a brute force conversation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it went south. It went south. So, so lastly, I, I kind of think you're writing a book. Are you writing a book? I sort of am. Yeah. No, that's yeah, commitment. I, I, I know. 
So these medium pieces, the 600 words at a time, I hope over the next months will cohere into something that I can pull together into a story that I actually think is about quantum intelligence. It's about how we develop those both sides of that ability to know and, um, and use it to be less wrong. Right. Well, let me, let me uh, leave you with as great an encouragement as I can muster to, you should write that book. You know, yeah. I have, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed the last time we talked. I've enjoyed our emails back and forth, your feedback on my book. You have a lot to say, a lot of important things to say to the world. And I think you're a critical piece of this question of how do we, how do we work through that bottleneck and how do we help society get to a, a place where the majority of human lives, you know, are, are being realized in a, in a, in a happy, contented and, and you know, material or, or positive way. And so thank you for, you know, being here, but really more importantly, David, thank you for being you. And I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself that it took us like six years. <laughs> it was a long road. Well, you're very kind, Chris. And, and, you know, we, we don't often talk about this stuff with each other, but I think there's a lot of folks out there who are looking for how to move this, how to move this oh, thing yeah. forward. And yeah. it's really fun to find a fellow traveler. So yeah. I really appreciate your encouragement and kind words and let's do it again. No, no, no. I'd love to. I mean, I, you know, I'm going to ping you in a month. We'll have you back and we'll keep, we'll keep the conversation going. And yeah, thank you for doing it. Okay. Excellent. All right. Take Be care. well. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.